0: Spring 1630, John Winthrop and over 700 of his fellow Puritans prepared to embark from England to the Americas, eventually arriving in the ancestral lands of the native Namkerg, later known as Salem, Massachusetts. In a sermon preparing them for their journey, Reverend Winthrop encouraged them, saying, We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when God shall make us a praise and glory, for we must consider that we shall be as a city on a hill, the eyes of all the people upon us, These earliest European colonizers, settlers, often employed biblical typologies to make sense of themselves and the world around them. As a city on a hill, they were not only the new England, but the new Jerusalem, the new Israel. They were God's chosen people setting out to build a righteous empire. As they encountered indigenous tribes... They scanned their Bibles for a way to likewise categorize and understand them, landing eventually on the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. You get the point. Those people living in the land of Canaan, whom our book of Joshua describes being decimated in route to these people's, uh en route to making these people's homes into their promised land. Now, historically speaking, these Puritans, these pilgrims, are our Christian ancestors, are those who in time would become Congregationalist and Unitarian, the former joining with others in 1957 to become the United Church of Christ, and of course we are a merger of both the Unitarian Universalist Association and the United Church of Christ. And so it's necessary for us To reckon with this legacy, rather than pretend it doesn't exist. To grapple with scriptures like our reading today from the book of Joshua, which provided the foundational logic for European empires to justify the genocide and displacement of indigenous people. After all, is this not what Joshua did? What God commanded Joshua to do? And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will hand over all of them slain to Israel. And they put to the sword all who were in it, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and they burned the city of Hazor with fire. But in fact, the the pilgrims, the Puritans, were just continuing what had been theological precedent for over 200 years when the Doctrine of Discovery was written, a theological document uh, promulgated by the Pope, to establish a spiritual, political, and legal justification for the colonization and seizure of land that was not inhabited by Christians. And this, too, just seemed to follow logically, right, on the heels of centuries of medieval crusades and holy wars. This is our history, isn't it? What's wrong with it? Throughout U.S. history, the Supreme Court has even used this 15th century document, the Doctrine of Discovery, as as a justification to legally ignore or invalidate any native people's claims to property and resources, with courts continuing to cite it to this very day. If you read the Bible the way that most of us were either taught to read it or assumed we were supposed to read it, that scripture is consistent, that it's always justified in what it says, that we are to, to read it sort of simply, straightforwardly, understand it and obey it and apply it to our lives, whether we like it or not, well, then most of us reach a bit of a moral quandary when we come to passages like Joshua Joshua 11. The options seem to be defend scripture, or, as I want to insist this morning, our interpretation of it, one that God's command and Joshua's actions, killing everything that breathes are, well, they are perfectly legitimate. After all, some Christians do argue, and all too many of them, that if all humans are sinful and deserve the fires of hell apart from praying the sinner's prayer and being saved by faith in Jesus, then... As one person puts it on the popular evangelical website, the Gospel Coalition, Scripture makes it plain that due to human sin, God is entirely justified in judging anyone, not just the Canaanites. God owes life to no one, so if he decides to execute his judgment on earth, whether through natural disasters or human armies, well, how is that a violation of any moral law, they write? Or, the second option in defending scripture is to explain away why it was justified then. The Canaanites were especially evil. But this passage, well, it shouldn't be used now by, well, by our pilgrim or Puritan ancestors, or by us to do the same. But but this kind of interpretive logic requires some major theological gymnastics that, at least in my readings, are pretty unconvincing. And the only other option seems to be that because we're embarrassed by it, by this part of our holy scriptures, we, we simply pretend that they don't exist, right? That's what most of us, most churches have done, just like as we explored last week, what most of us do with our anger. We just sort of push it down, try to pretend it doesn't exist until it erupts outside side. But I believe this lack of engagement is so costly for us in our world because it ends up ceding it to those who would see nothing inherently wrong with using it to justify violence in the name of God against those that it categorizes as heathens, as Canaanites, the non-Christians, whose lives somehow matter less. But. And this might be the biggest but in all of scripture. I believe there is a different way to read and understand this text. Through which it in fact becomes life affirming. Stick with me. You up for this journey? Don't don't be convinced, uh, you know, don't take my word for it. But another year, the year was 722 BC, 2,744 years ago. For 20 continuous years, the small kingdom of Israel has been invaded by the powerful Assyrian Empire from the north. Thousands have been displaced, bound and forcibly relocated far from their homeland. Many more have died in battle or fled to neighboring kingdoms Seeking refuge, families are separated, Livestock decimated, homes burned. Those who remain are like ghosts in a barren wasteland. Roughly 130 years later, Babylonia usurps Assyria as the military superpower and likewise invades the region again doing much the same thing all over. The book of Joshua, like the rest of Scripture, didn't just drop out of heaven with no context. It wasn't etched in ink by passive hands. Scholars have determined that it was written during this period, in the aftermath of the Assyrian invasion, and finished in the aftermath of the Babylonian invasion. That is, by a people who had suffered immense collective trauma. Nor does everything written in the Bible, again, reflect an ideal to which we should aspire. It doesn't. As, again, we explored with Psalm 137 last week. The Bible was written by those grappling with what their faith in God, or the faithfulness of God, means in a complicated, volatile, and often violent world. And we are called we also are challenged to enter into that conversation amidst our own complex realities of war and violence and injustice and inequity. See, the book of Joshua, like much of the Bible, is not a literal telling of history, which we know because the events described in Joshua never actually happened. Since the mid-20th century, there have been extensive archaeological excavations in the areas described in Joshua, which began by those scholars who were attempting to prove that they did, in fact, happen. These battles, these places, existed. Now, further research could always change this, but the vast amount of evidence collected over the past 70, 80-plus years is that the conquest described in Joshua is as one leading Old Testament scholar at Yale puts it, largely if not entirely fictitious. And we also have texts like the book of Judges, reflecting the period right after this, right? The people are in the land. And the book of Judges speaks to interactions with the Canaanites, questions about intermarriage, which would be kind of irrelevant if no Canaanites existed. Even more, as we enter into the conversation that scripture has with itself, we read passages that present very different perspectives, like our reading this morning from the book of Jonah. Again, the book of Jonah is a short story, a bit of a comedy, about this reluctant prophet whom God calls to go to the people of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. No wonder Jonah wanted to run away. Go to them, God says, and preach a message of repentance that they might turn from their evil ways and turn toward ways of life. To which Jonah says, yeah, nah, I'm good. If I go to them as you've told me to, you will have mercy on them, and I would rather see them suffer and die. So, nah. But eventually, though reluctant, the whole way, literally the entire book of Jonah, he's sitting there sulking at the end, once they change their ways. Jonah does go as God says, and by God's grace, the people do change their ways. Right, and so we get this very different message about God's mercy and love for all people, including our mortal enemies. We don't have time to explore this in full this morning, but I just want to lift it up alongside our our continued exploration of the book of Joshua. It's important to note as we grapple with that elephant in the room, why then was Joshua written the way that it was? How are we supposed to read it? And in what way can we possibly hear its word, its proclamation as instructive or revelatory for us? Again, as we seek to discern God's calling for us in our own world. When we read the book of Joshua in this matrix of being invaded and conquered themselves, of having witnessed their homes and livestock burned to the ground, their children slaughtered before their eyes, their possessions raided, the displacement, the family separations, Read in this matrix, the book of Joshua begins to take on a whole new world of meaning and significance for its original hearers and for us. Because it becomes not the logic for invasion, the justification for powerful European empires, for pilgrims and Assyri- or Puritans who are more akin to Assyria and Babylonia than the Israelites. It's not justification for them to commit genocide and enslavement in their conquest for p- supremacy rather it's the cry of the oppressed people who are themselves trying to find a way to live on in the aftermath of violent trauma we might instead hear these words in the mouth the mouths of those indigenous peoples of the americas who were displaced who watched their villages be burned their homes pillaged and people violated, whose children were stolen so they could be civilized at church-run boarding schools that were meant to take the Indian out of them, to erase their connection to their ancestors, their traditions, their culture, their sacred lands. We might hear these words from Joshua in the mouths of their descendants, who despite their resiliency, despite still being here, are still erased and consigned to a relic of history. We might hear these words in the mouths of those whose ancestors were stolen from across Africa and enslaved here for hundreds of years, only to be followed by 150 more of legalized forms of oppression and neglect and brutality. See, like these communities, the people that brought forth the book of Joshua had no real power at their disposal to do the things that the book of Joshua actually describes. They were the powerless ones on the underside of history. Again, as we reflected on last week, at the individual level with Psalm 137, so too at the collective level. Groups of people who have endured trauma must have spaces that are safe for them to voice their rage at being violated for so long. Themselves, their ancestors, the ways that they carry the wounds of their ancestors, they must have those spaces as a way of reclaiming their dignity, their humanity, of asserting that what was done to them was wrong and deserves accountability, deserves justice, whether or not they will actually get it through our courts or systems or structures. Such spaces, including before God as Scripture is, are capable of holding this pain, the rage from these wounds, it's necessary in order to work through that rage and come to a place of healing that doesn't lead to actually trying to live out this revenge fantasy. It feels a little bit counterintuitive, but that's just it. This is what trauma studies and studies about healing and human resiliency from war and violence have taught us that rather than defending, so for us, rather than defending the violence in the book of Joshua as the action of a just God, which says more about what we are willing to tolerate and justify than it says about Scripture, rather than reading Joshua as depicting an ideal to which God's people might aspire or use as justification for the invasion or slaughtering of others, we might read it in a manner similar to Psalm 137 last week as a collective revenge fantasy as the language of the unheard naming their wound and desire to get even doing this in worship before God and one another knowing actually that it's not possible to do so it's not possible to get even and yet naming it is necessary reading the book of Joshua in this way and putting it in conversation with other parts of scripture, like Jonah and Jesus' call to love our enemies, helps us to hear how it reflects not an end point to which we aspire, but a community's honest, unvarnished, complicated and necessary step in the journey of healing, of returning to the land of the living. For as the pioneering scholar Judith Herman reminds us, doing so is actually a way for us to regain our sense of power without becoming a criminal or acting monstrously ourselves. Like last week, it's a challenge for us when we're in a world where we've been taught to just not be angry to repress it push it aside and any time a person or community does vocalize their anger at their violation we blame them this morning like last week may those among us who need permission to feel their anger And most importantly, the wound that is underneath it, the grief that lies below it. May they find here the solace and courage to do so. Permission not to take out your anger on others, but still to deal with it in an honest and constructive way rather than pushing it away. To speak it to God, even knowing there is no judgment, only compassion and understanding. At the same time, I think the particular challenge for all of us through this text is that in a world of injustice and inequity, where the wounds of the past remain and new wounds continue to be wrought, will we have the courage and humility, the fortitude and the resolve, To build a community at Federated and in the world around us that, like God, offers understanding and compassion rather than judgment to those communities in this nation who've been so violated when they voice their anger. Rather than, again, blaming them for their situation, telling them to shut up and stay in their place, rather than feeling the need to defend the sacred myths of our nation, would our hearts be open? Would our minds be changed? Would we work alongside them, alongside one another, toward changing laws and building a world so that all may truly have life and have it abundantly? May it be so for our healing, for the healing of all the